When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a critical question that took over politics Twitter this weekend, thanks to a Washington Post essay by Robert Kagan. That question being, what's to be done about our constitutional crisis? Kagan writes that the Republican Party today is a zombie party. The party's main, if not sole purpose, is as the willing enabler of Trump's efforts to game the electoral system to ensure his return to power. These enablers from the MAGA monsters who smashed the once sacred space of our U.S. Capitol to those in office like Arizona Congressman slash insurrectionist Paul Gosar, they consist of a real and very dangerous faction of the Republican Party today. Congressman Gosar is saying he wants a Trump-Biden rematch by year's end while describing the Arizona fraud as, quote, a good start. Kind of saying the quiet part out loud, because that is exactly what this gaslighting anti-democratic exercise has always been about. A start to solidifying the norm of challenging, but really stealing future elections. That cyber ninja report, which may or may not have been written in orange Cheeto font, found that Biden defeated Trump by more votes than the original count. And yet that very finding now has Trump Republicans doubling down on their election lies with Arizona GOP chair and big lie minion Kelly Ward calling for a new audit because Arizona tax dollars haven't been wasted enough. What this bogus report said never really mattered so long as the performance of speculation aired on Trump media, so long as it kept the big lie alive. And it is very much alive. Similar sham partisan recounts are now happening in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Texas. Your vote questioned, your decision threatened while changing election laws to make it harder for Democrats to win and easier for them to challenge the results each time they lose. That does not describe a democracy. It is instead the very calculated plan already in motion to overturn the 2024 election and restore Trump or some version of him back in power. With me now is Stuart Stevens, senior advisor for the Lincoln Project and Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation. And Stuart, I want to start with you um, because you spent a long time working in, you know, normal era Republican politics. And I, I just wonder what you made of the Kagan argument that essentially, you know, what we saw was not just a ragtag band of losers ransack the Capitol and defecate all over the place. What we saw was a practice uh, round for overturning future elections that actually continued and has been extended with these fake recounts and changing election laws. Do you agree with that basic premise? hundred percent. I read Robert Kagan's article and I said, hallelujah, I'm going to go out and pass it around like watchtowers door to door. Um, there is a need for us, uh, a lot of us to believe that we live in a normal time. We have a normal president. There was such great tension over the last um, four years of Trump. But that would be a huge mistake. And it is exactly what the autocrats who have become the Republican Party want us to do. They, they, they are very patient. They're very well funded. They have these buffoonish characters out front, but they're not buffoonish. 
And what Robert Kagan said is so dead on, and we have to take this seriously. It is a threat to democracy. And the Republican Party, I, it's mind-boggling to say this for somebody who worked in the party, but there's no alternative. But the truth is an anti-democratic, autocratic force. It is not a normal political party in the sense that it has a different ideology than the Democratic Party. It exists to change democracy in America and ultimately in an unrecognizable form. You know, and Ellie, not to have you engage in media criticism here, but I think one of the challenges that that I feel, I'll take it upon myself, is that this conversation is not the way most of, you know, the media, most of political press really, you know, sort of conducts itself in approaching the Republican Party. There is a tendency to sort of veer back toward normalcy and try to make both the parties fit into sort of an on the one hand, on the other hand, they're having a normal political debate. This is just about political debate. That's a normal way of dealing with things. And I think there is a sort of compulsion to try to drag the Republicans, Democrats back to that norm. But I, I, you know, some of us who are out here saying, no, this is this is fascism. This was the beer market push that we saw on January 6th. This was a rehearsal for an undemocratic society. You sort of sound like crazy, right, if you're trying to say that. And I wonder if you think that maybe this sort of this sort of de the, the, the desire for norms, even in the Justice Department, and you've said that criticism a lot, is what's preventing us from fighting this the way we should. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the mainstream media loves the two-party system. It gives them conflict. It gives them drama. And admitting that one of the parties is not a political party, but a white supremacist rump who has, who has risen to try to overturn democracy doesn't fit neatly in their narratives. And so they try to deny it, and they try to, as you put it so well, try to bring us back to normal. So what's happening is pretty clear here. First of all, Trump has now lost the 2020 election more times than New York Jets, right? Like, he, he, he's, he's got nothing. They're, they're, that's done with, right? But this, as you pointed out, was never an effort really to, to relitigate the 2020 election. It's always been about 2022 and 2024. The Republicans have no other strategy to win. And, you know, Stuart well knows, if you go back to 2012, when, you know, the Republicans were picking, when Mitt Romney got his teeth smacked in by Barack Obama, the Republicans were picking up the pieces, they had an autopsy. And they saw that the only way forward for their party was to expand their base beyond the white supremacist rump that usually votes for them. That was the only solution except for authoritarianism. If we have a country where everybody who wants to vote can vote, and all of those votes are counted, the Republicans are not a viable national party. And instead of like dealing with that, you know, sadness and, and, and responding to that, they have gone in this other direction, which is the hard right fascism that we see all across the country right now. You know, and so you're from Mississippi, so you, you, you've seen that kind of politics up close, right? There is a way, I mean, that is the state with the largest population of African-Americans in the entire country. Yet Democrats cannot win anything there because the state is, is sort of gerrymanured and there is a manufactured minority rule that feels almost permanent, almost no matter what Democrats do in that state. It's fixed for the Republicans. It does feel like they're trying to expand the same Mississippi strategy. You can see them doing it in Texas. You can see them doing it in Florida. Uh, you know, and so it works there even in a state that's diverse. Let's go to a state that's not diverse. Uh, Wyoming, <laughs> by my old state of Colorado. Here's Liz Cheney of Wyoming uh, talking about the leader of her, of her party. Take a listen. What he's done is embrace Donald Trump. And 
if I were doing what he's doing, I, I would be deeply ashamed of myself. I don't know how you explain that to your children. There's a difference between somebody who voted for Donald Trump and being the Republican leader after an insurrection and setting all of that aside and going to Mar-a-Lago and, and rehabilitating him, bringing him back in. That, to me, is unforgivable. So here's the problem that I have, Stuart. She voted for Donald Trump, right? So it, she's voted for Donald Trump's agenda almost universally. So, so, but she's saying there's a difference between that and what Kevin McCarthy is doing, which is basically sitting at Trump's feet and asking him to be petted, right? Asking to be petted. Um, but she also says that behind the scenes, other Republicans are glad that she's out front fighting Trump. They don't have the courage to do it themselves. They'd rather this lady, they'd rather hide behind her skirts and let her do it. Meanwhile, the person Trump wants to run against her, who used to call Donald Trump a racist, her name is Harriet Hegeman. She's a Wyoming Republican. Um, Trump wants her to run. But five years ago, she tried to overturn his victory in the primary race. She called him a bigoted candidate who would repel voters. She said that um, it would make it hard for Democrats to win a national election. She used to be just like Elise Stefanik. So you have this situation where the Republicans who are weak just roll over. And the Republicans who are strong, in theory like Liz Cheney, vote for him and will vote for him again, I'm sure, if he runs in 2024. So I don't know how you stop well, it if even the Liz Cheney stick with him. Well, I don't think Liz Cheney's going to vote for Donald Trump again. And she voted for impeachment and she's voted for the 1-6 commission. You may not agree with her political view, but she has a political view you can disagree with. It still is an yeah. ideological fight. She is defending democracy here. We would be a lot better off if we had impeached Donald Trump. If Republicans uh, at that moment after the insurrection, when they could have impeached Donald Trump, they would have prohibited him from taking office again. And it could have begun at least a process of rehabilitation of some sort of affirmation of democracy. They didn't do that. And I've said this before, I think it's going to go down like the Munich Accord is one of these tragic moments of attempting to appease somebody. But at least, you know, Chamberlain was a well-intentioned person. Um, <laughs> you know, the trouble I have with people that switch in the way uh, this uh, woman from Wyoming has, I, I just don't believe people change deeply held beliefs in a few years. I think it yeah. just proves that you didn't deeply hold those beliefs. It's hard because you think about Brian Kemp, you think about Brian Kemp, you know, Ellie, this guy's done everything but roll over and show Trump his belly. And Trump still hates him. Trump still hates him because no matter what he tries to do to appease Trump, you know, somebody with that kind of sociopathology will never love you. They will never appreciate it. They will never be grateful. He still is like, well, I'd rather have Stacey Abrams than you, Brian Kemp. He's still rejected. He still mocked him this weekend. I, it, it's almost as if, I mean, there's nothing that Republicans can do to appease Trump enough. Kevin... McCarthy, there's nothing he can do to appease Trump enough other than hand him back the White House. That's it. That's all you yeah, can do. The, Look at the former VP. Go ahead. The willingness for Republicans to be debased for this man is is one of the stories of our time, right? Like, you know, you can look at Ted Cruz letting that man yeah. talk talk bad about his wife and just didn't didn't do nothing. You can look at the uh, the younger Bush, let him talk bad about his dad, just didn't wouldn't do nothing. Like just the just the level of I, I think the word is cowardice um, and debasement that these people are willing to go through in service of Donald Trump is is frankly shocking. But again, there th there's more here than just like the the personal moral failings of the Republicans. They have a plan here, and that plan includes getting secretaries of state in place in various um, critical states who are willing to throw away duly cast votes. I mean, like, there, so there, there are two things going on. There's like the very public clownishness, right, where Republicans kind of beclown themselves 
to Donald Trump. But then there's the very serious attempts to not just overthrow democracy, but to make it so that democracy cannot happen again. Um, in 2022 and 2024. And those those tracks are going in parallel. Both of those things are happening at the same time. Yes, the gullible people might think that, you know, next week they're going to have a rematch and that, you know, a fool and his money are easily parted and the Republicans are happy to take their money. But what they're actually doing is far more scary. And it's directly, you know, it's pointed head on at taking away the rights of people to have their votes counted in the future. And you know what scares me the most, Stuart, is that if Donald Trump is able by having, you know, implanted his people all the way down the line to the people who are going to count the votes and gotten states to say, yes, we're willing to overturn the election in 2024, because I think he'll only run if he feels that it's a guarantee that he's going to win because he doesn't like to be a loser. Let's just say they do that. You know, there'll be a few Liz Cheney's here and there. But the most right. likely thing is they all roll over. I mean, you think Mitch McConnell's not going to roll over? They're all going to roll over if he gets back in. And then we can't get our democracy back. We can't get him out because the vast majority of them are going to roll over. Uh, that is the plan. Um, and they're pretty open about it. Um, it's methodical. It's not a coincidence that they had this uh, series of legislations to propose in different states. People have thought about this. There is a plan to do this. You can't change the demographic tide in America. So the only way, as you're saying, is to change the people who will vote, who are allowed to vote, and who votes can count. I mean, this is what is happening here. And I, I just feel like I go around shaking people. We, I, I mean, I worked in this and We know these people. As bad as you think yeah. they are, the people that are trying to do this are worse. And please take it seriously, as we should. Yeah. Because if you lose one election like this, it may be the last election that we recognize as anything we've grown up with in America. I, I, I agree. I 100 percent agree with you. Stuart Stevens, Ellie Mastal, uh, God bless us all and God help us. Uh, thank you both. Up next on The Readout, a make or break week for Democrats caught between a nihilistic opposition party, as we've just described, and obstructionist members of their own party. And as President Biden gets his booster shot, thousands of New York health workers are facing the consequences of their vaccine hostility. They're about to lose their jobs. Plus, the NBA's COVID showdown with Kyrie Irving. If he's not vaccinated, he cannot play on his own home court. And he's not alone. And tonight's absolute worst, an extremist on abortion who is again claiming that he has a cure for rape. Yep, the readout stays after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
Moments ago, Senate Republicans refused to move forward with a vote that would suspend the nation's debt limit. That's right. Republican senators chose to move us closer to a devastating default because they want to inflict maximum pain on Democrats. Who cares if it hurts the American people? To be honest, none of this should come as a surprise from a party that is devoid of ideas and preoccupied with deranged lies spewed by Captain Bonespurs. It should also come as no surprise, given the fact that Republicans seem to care more about cutting corporate taxes than they do about the overall financial well-being of this country. Today's vote would have addressed debts incurred under a Republican Senate, House and President. During the previous administration, members of both parties voted together to raise or suspend the debt limit three times. This is shaping up to be a very busy week on Capitol Hill, with Democrats juggling passage of an infrastructure bill, finalizing a human infrastructure package central to Biden's agenda, and staving off a government shutdown and default. A challenging task made worse by a nihilistic Republican Party that's intent on sabotaging things that are desperately needed, like immigration reform, voting rights, and police reform. Democrats could make these Republicans irrelevant by nuking the filibuster. There's the problem. There are people on their own side who are standing in the way. I'm looking at you, Senator Sinema and Joe Manchin. That leaves President Biden's agenda trapped between those two competing polls. And with the midterm elections inching closer, Democrats have to wonder if failure is an acceptable outcome. Joining me now, Jason Johnson, professor of journalism and politics at Morgan State University and host of the Slate podcast, A Word with, David John- with Jason Johnson, and Adrian Elrod, former senior aide on the Biden-Harris and Clinton-Kane campaigns. Um, thank you both for being here. Let me play you, Joe Biden, because, you know, if there's one thing about Joe Biden, he's Mr. Optimistic. Here he is. Any progress on a reconciliation deal today, Mr. President? How close do you think you are? You know me. I'm more an optimist. I think things are going to go well. I think we're going to get it done. And uh, but uh, I have meetings uh, <clears throat> tonight, tomorrow, and uh, for the next little bit. I know Jason is my fellow pessimist. I'm going to give you a shot on this one, Adrian. Is that optimism <laughs> realistic? I mean, Democrats have not gotten through police reform, which Tim Scott has already turned against his own reform ideas. They couldn't get through voting rights. The voting act, uh, voting the, the VRA is basically dead uh, on a stretcher. They have they are now barely going to squeak through maybe on infrastructure and they can't get their big human infrastructure bill. What's with the optimism? Well, look, I, I think we're, we're lucky that our president is inherently optimistic, especially compared to his predecessor. But, but look, Joy, I mean, there's a lot of work that's got to be done. And here's, here are the things that we know. We know that, number one, Democrats are going to have to rely on each other to pass this agenda. We're not going to get any Republicans. We're certainly not going to get any Republicans when it comes to voting rights. So we're really going to have to rely on each other. What does that mean? We're going to have to figure out how to make a deal. And that is what, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are working on right now. How do we actually get this legislation through, the Build Back Better agenda through um, with our own caucus? And I got to tell you, you know, you look at where we are on the Build Back Better Act compared to where we were uh, 10, 11 years ago when we were passing the Affordable Health Care Act. I was the chief of staff in Congress at the time. That was a very difficult piece of legislation to get through because it was widely unpopular. This is actually a very popular bill. I mean, of course, the ACA became popular after it was passed and people realized the benefits that this legislation provided for it for them. But this is totally different. And that's why I think it's frustrating to see some of the moderates in our very own caucus, um, you know, stifle the progress here. Um, I'm telling you, 
you tell me who who in, in some of these moderate districts is, is going to say, I don't want my prescription drug costs lowered. I don't want to expand child care access. I don't want to expand or even provide paid leave for all. Um, these are very popular policies that are part of this act. And I do believe at the end of the day, day Joy, this is going to get done, but it may not happen quite as fast as we initially had hoped for. Well, I mean, who, who, who in their districts, maybe nobody in their districts, but their donors, maybe. Um, these moderate, these nine moderates are still calling, they want their bill, the bill they like, to pass. There's nine moderate Democrats who are saying, no, pass our bill that we like. There's no guarantee that progressives have gotten that if they do that, they'll get anything in return. Pramila Jayapal, Katie Porter, Ilhan Omar, and others wrote a letter saying Congress now faces a choice, advance the entirety of an agenda that gets American families the help they need or deliver only a fraction of it. That's why we as leaders of the Congressional Progressive Caucus remain committed to voting for the infrastructure bill only after the Build Back Better Act is passed. Q. Joe Manchin sounding a lot like a Republican. Here he is. In a nutshell, we need to be looking at, uh, are we moving more to a social, uh, uh, to a, a social refinement, if you will? And I'm, I'm concerned about basically a society moving towards more of an entitlement mentality versus a rewarding mentality. An entitlement mentality. That sounds like 80s Reaganism, Jason. This The $3.5 trillion reconciliation pa- package that Joe Manchin is calling entitlement mentality Half of people favor it, only 25% oppose it. Your thoughts? <laughs> the vast majority of people want it. It's spread out over 10 years. We want to talk about entitlement. We shouldn't talk about him and his family and the benefits uh, that he and his wife and his daughter have gotten from all sorts of government deals. We're going to talk about that sort of level of entitlement. But here's, here's the problem here. Joe Manchin has been allowed to be this guy, and Kristen Sinema have been allowed to be this person for months. And you have President Biden out there doing this halftime code speech. We can rally together. We Look, you're down 37 to 3, okay? There's not that much time left in the game. And you've let your quarterback run around the whole time like he's running the game and not throw to anybody. That is what we have going on right now. The Progressive Caucus is saying we are tired of falling for the banana in the tailpipe. Okay, we keep voting for things and then they get to the Senate and they go nowhere. We're tired of it. We actually have to show something to our constituents next year. And here's joy. Here's where I think the real problem is. Like I said, I think the debt ceiling is probably going to get fixed. But when we talk about the human infrastructure bill, when we talk about the plain infrastructure bill, if these things don't get passed by the end of the year, by like Thanksgiving time, when everybody's getting together with their family, having discussions, you're not going to get it passed next year. And no one is going to vote out and vote next year under voter suppressive circumstances for a Democratic Party that says, send us some new reinforcements and then we'll actually do the things that we ran on. They have to show they can get something done with this level of power or nobody has the incentive to give them more power after next year's elections. And Adrian, that's the problem, right? I mean, Dianne Feinstein, too, put her in that list. I think she voted no on the the bill today. Um, How do Democrats go back to voters, particularly voters of color in 2022 and say, "Okay, see what happened was we couldn't get you voting rights, infrastructure, human infrastructure. We really couldn't get you anything because Joe Manchin said we couldn't. That's not really a platform when you people can barely get to vote at all. That's correct, Joy. And I think the bottom line is we're, we're not going to because we've got to get these things passed. And if that means we reformed the filibuster or we amended on certain pieces of legislation like voting rights, we have to do that. I think President Biden knows that. Look, he wants to go into the midterms with some wins under his belt, but he also made promises to the American people that he's got to deliver on. And he knows that. So however this approach happens, I think Jason's right. This may not happen in the next week. It may not happen in the next 10 days. 
Um, but you, I think you will see some progress made over the, you know, over the course of at least the next two months, I would think, because members of Congress, especially a lot of these moderates, they don't want to have to go home and face their constituents who say to them, we elected you to deliver on the Biden agenda. Biden received more votes than any other candidate running for president in the United States history. So his agenda is something that is supported by the majority of the American people. And these guys don't want to go home and hear from their constituents time and time again. Why didn't you give me paid leave? Why didn't you expand my child care? You know, the, the things that are in this bill, the components of the Build Back Better Act are tangible components that the American people desperately need. We've also got to keep in mind, Joy, and you know this very well, we had essentially no progress under Donald Trump on anything. The only thing he passed was a tax cut for the ultra wealthy and for the corporations. So we've got right. a lot of work to be done. And by the way, this bill is paid for. That's the other thing that's so frustrating to to me to see that, you know, people right. talk about the cost. It's paid for over 10 years. So but see, that's the thing I do think we we'll always- get some progress. Right. We always talk about the pay fors rather than what it does, right, on the Democratic side. Let's play the, yeah, uh, the big exactly. gun has come in. President Obama is weighed in on the uh, Build Back Better Act. Take a listen. When you look at the overall package, uh, you know, it's got uh, a headline uh, price tag of $3.5 trillion, but that's not a single year. This is spread out over a number of years. And most importantly, it's paid for by asking the wealthiest of Americans, who have benefited incredibly uh, over the last several decades, and even in the midst of a pandemic, saw their wealth and assets rise enormously, asking them to pay a few percentage points more uh, in taxes in order to make sure that we have a economy that's fair for everybody. Jason, I, and, and kudos to Robin Roberts to score in that interview. I would like to believe that was enough to move minds and hearts. It might have been in like 2009. <laughs> I don't know if it is today. Right. I feel like the base right. is D-O-N-E done. If Democrats can't deliver anything, I don't care what Obama says. That's just my cynical opinion. Your thoughts. So back in 2009, there was this great show on, that was called The Closer, right? And that's when <laughs> Obama was the closer. Like, he yeah. could come in and he could give a great speech like Kara Sedgwick, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, we love him, and then it would work, right? But see, we're, we're, not, we're not there now. People were very angry at him. I think one of the things that we have realized in this is that uh, the former President Obama getting health care through and the stimulus package is really amazing when you look at it in contrast with what's happening today. Truly. But here's the problem, Joy. It's like you have so many people who are dead set in their positions who, rather than seeing the circumstances of, you know, a slow moving coup and in a, a pandemic that has ravaged the American economy and it still continues to stress people out, they're still fighting as if it is 2009. They still think these are arguments that they can go and, and work out in retail politics. And we're no longer there politically. And I have to say this because this is important for the Democrats who say we shouldn't have to play at this line. You got to bring in reinforcements, which means passing the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. The only reason that you can keep people from Kristen, like Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin from having this kind of power is if you allow the voters to actually vote and oh. give the Democrats the leads they need so that they don't have to fight at the margins. I need I need Democrats to hear that. Uh, well, maybe they will. We'll see. Jason Johnson, Adrian Elrod, you're both great. Thank you very much. Up next on The Readout, repercussions for the anti-vaxxers are now kicking in. Many of them are going to lose their jobs. So how do the rest of us vaccinated folks protect ourselves from them? Stay with us.
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. President Biden received his COVID booster shot today in a public display at the White House. The president again urged those who are still unvaccinated to get their shots, if not to save their own lives, then to save the lives of those around them. Now, you'd think that'd be a reason enough for all Americans to get vaccinated. But for tens of thousands of healthcare workers in New York, today is the day that they need to decide whether to get their first shot or risk losing their job. That's because the state imposed a vaccine mandate for all healthcare workers. And as of last week, up to 72,000 were not yet vaccinated. Teachers and school workers in New York City now face the same decision. A separate citywide vaccine mandate was just allowed to proceed by a federal appeals panel after it was blocked last week by a federal judge. The consequences will be the same in the nation's largest school system. Get a vaccine or get a new job. Joining me now is Mara Gay, a member of the New York Times editorial board, and Dr. Lippy Roy, COVID medical director for Housing Works in New York City. Thank you both for being here. Dr. Roy, I'm going to start with you. Um, this is where the consequences and the mandates kick in. What do you make of the fact that New York City is going to be pretty strict? New York City already has, this is two for my producers, they already require vaccine, uh, proof of vaccines for dining indoors, um, for going in the club, for fitness classes indoors, pools and studios, and indoor entertainment like movie theaters, convention centers, being on Broadway, et cetera. Does this new vaccine requirement with those 72,000 healthcare workers now facing the music, is that what we need to proceed so the rest of us are safe? Yeah, Joy, it's so good to be with you again. Uh, yeah, that's unfortunate what has to happen. If you have a, such a large swath of people who are still not abiding by public health uh, guidelines, recommendations by health leaders, health authorities like the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, uh, then this is what needs to happen. Uh, and I'm all in support of mandates. And I'll tell you, I'll share with you at Housing Works, when we implemented the, the New York City mandate, which started a few weeks earlier, um, two of my senior staff, uh, a senior nurse, and a senior nurse practitioner who also happened to be women of color who were staunchly against vaccines for the past eight months, once that vaccine mandate kicked in or weekly testing on your own time, um, guess what? They miraculously got vaccinated. So I think, I, I mean, I'm all for, mandates work, health policies work. The problem, however, and you're going to see this already, is that there's a threat of a lot of healthcare workers not showing up, leaving a job because they, they're going to get terminated. Um, and unfortunately, that's what we saw a little bit as well when HR sent a notice to three nurses being suspending them. And what happened is that it left one nurse alone to take care of 100 patients and do yeah. possibly up to 20 Luckily, we got back up. But that's the problem uh, with these kind of mandates, though, as well. Well, so here's the thing, Mara. I mean, if people decide they want to quit over this in New York City, well, guess what? Uh, you will not get unemployment benefits. New York will not extend unemployment benefits to healthcare workers who are fired for just, you know, for not doing the mandate. So at this point, unless you have a doctor approved uh, reason for not getting uh, man uh, for not getting vaccinated, you're going to have to do it or you're not going to be able to collect unemployment. You have police officers who are quitting. Uh, dozens of people in Massachusetts quit 
over the vaccine mandate, according to the State Police Association in August. Um, they're quitting, and I, I don't know if they're going to be able to collect unemployment, but there are some people who are saying, I'd rather be unemployed than vaccinated. I guess that's just what we're going to have to live with. Yeah, you know, um, this is really time to hold the line. But the interesting thing is, for days now, what I've been hearing from the vast majority of New Yorkers in these professions who are vaccinated is an immense amount of relief because yeah. they have done the right thing consistently to protect themselves, their family members, and those who they serve, whether in public schools uh, or in healthcare settings. And they deserve to have uh, the freedom to breathe well because they are COVID free, the freedom to live their lives um, in health and dignity uh, without being uh, you know, more terrified than necessary, frankly, of this deadly pandemic. I mean, it is important to note that, uh, you know, despite the fact that it's about 70,000 uh, workers who are under these uh, mandates and haven't gotten vaccinated yet in New York, uh, that is a large and concerning number. This is yeah. the right policy, I believe. But at the same time, yeah, New York's a huge state. So we're talking about millions of people who have done the right thing. And, yeah. you know, again, um, I think this is the right policy and it's it's going to uh, change some hearts and minds, uh, maybe by force. <laughs> it will change behavior because at this point, it doesn't matter what you think. You, you, you're either going to have your job or you're not. You know, and I think for a lot of people who are frustrated with this argument, I think people are cool with that. You know, we're seeing, you know, Dr. Roy, we're seeing more people seeing uh, showing up with ivermectin um, issues. There have been two, it says two deaths suspected for people treating themselves. I mean, we're at a point now where it's madness. Uh, but I really want to just get both of you to comment very quickly. This is Joy Behar on The View uh, today, because there was this whole issue about whether the, whether two members of The View tested positive for COVID, which caused the dust up this week. Take a listen. We were all given numerous, numerous COVID tests. <laughs> I mean, so I many. I am thrilled to report that Sonny and Anna's Friday results turned out to be false positives and everyone is safe, healthy, and COVID-free. Okay? No one's got it. It was a mistake of some sort. How is that even possible, Dr. Roy? How can that happen, that these two women are tested just before they're interviewing the vice president and they suddenly test positive and then test negative? I don't get it. Yeah, so it's a little frustrating. So it I have several questions. So what kind of test did they get? Did they get the more accurate test, the one with higher sensitivity and specificity, i.e. the PCR test? Uh, that has a very high, um, it, it has very high accuracy. Or did they just get a rapid test, which has a high false negative? Um, so I, I really don't know. But I will tell you, if they, you have to rely on the testing because if the test is positive, they need to quarantine for up to 10 days. So uh, the testing is an issue. But really quickly on the ivermectin, it's very concerning that people are taking this medication that is not FDA approved to treat COVID. Uh, uh, those two people were the people that died among 14 people who were hospitalized in New Mexico because of ivermectin poisoning. One of them died from kidney failure, which is a known uh, effect of, of, of poisoning from ivermectin. It needs to stop. Yeah. Just get vaccinated. It's a lot easier and you keep your job. Mara Gay, uh, Dr. Libby Roy, thank you very much. Coming up, a standoff in the NBA as some players refuse to vax up ahead of the new season. One Hall of Famer says the solution is simple. Remove those players from their teams. That is next. Stay with us.
New York's vaccine requirement has brought the NBA's behind-the-scenes battle over vaccination into public view. The league does not require players to be vaccinated. But local rules in New York City and San Francisco that require proof of vaccination for large indoor spaces means unvaccinated players for the city's teams, the New York Knicks and the Brooklyn Nets and the Golden State Warriors, cannot play on their home courts. And over the weekend, the NBA denied a request for a religious exemption for Warriors player Andrew Wiggins. The NBA says 90 percent of the league is vaccinated. The New York Knicks say their entire roster is vaccinated, but not the Brooklyn Nets with superstar Kyrie Irving highlighting the NBA's vaccine issues. Irving did not attend the Nets media day today because of New York City's vaccine protocols. And he wouldn't address if he expects to play at home, saying he wanted to keep his vaccination status private. A report in Rolling Stone looked into the hold the anti-vaccine contingent currently has over the NBA and notes that Irving has been liking and following conspiracy theorists online alleging secret societies implanting vaccines to connect black people to a master computer for, quote, a plan of Satan. For real. While his aunt suggested Irving could skip Nets home games this season. Matt Sullivan, who wrote that story, joins me. He's also the author of Can't Knock the Hustle. Also joining me is Jamel Hill, contributing writer for The Atlantic and host of the podcast Jamel Hill is Unbothered. This is a wild story, Matt. Uh, I read through it today and had to go back and reread some lines in it. It appears that Kyrie Irving is in general a conspiracy theorist. He got in some heat before for questioning whether the earth is round or flat. And in that you know, previous issue, you know, he admitted to going down some YouTube rabbit holes over the, whether the earth is, is round or flat. So he is in general prone to sort of conspiracy theories. What scares me is it seems to be he's not alone contingent in the NBA? How big is this anti-vax contingent? I mean, as you said, Joy, the NBA does have 90% of players vaxxed and counting, but that's a lower rate than the conservative NFL. And my reporting shows that the NBA has an almost secret society of straight up anti-vaxxers. I report in my book that some players originally denied that the virus even existed. Now Kyrie's family is out here talking about, quote, Dr. Falsi. Another player was trying to explain to me for my story in Rolling Stone that masks don't work. And and then there's a theory floating around about Moderna mind control that doesn't deserve amplification here. But last year, if the NBA was all in all in on science and this pandemic proof bubble, uh, the Hoopers are sick of testing. They don't want to trust the science. They don't want to get vaxxed. They don't want to get tested on their days off. In fact, Joy, they want to go to the club. So it's really a race against time here and fake news for the NBA to basically shame its vaccine deniers into avoiding that next kind of superstar, super spreader event. You know, what what worries me about this, um, Jamel, is that, you know, we're talking about black players who have a lot of fans and a lot of influence and are parroting some of the anti-vax stuff that we hear just in our circles. And if they're saying it, if Kyrie Irving is saying it's just a conspiracy, it's very hard, you know, for you to get your cousin to, you know, to get vaccinated as well. Um, There were stories in this about Kyrie Irving going home to South Dakota, going to school events unmasked and them having to, like, alter the photos because he was violating, like, the rules, going into schools, meeting with young people. This is terrifying. These are people who are open to not just getting COVID themselves, but maybe giving it to other people. Well, and that's the part that I wish more of the players who are unvaxxed would really understand. It's not just their influence, but their ability um, to, to really highlight 
um, and, and be positive role models. Like you mentioned, like it, it was very moving, the fact that Kyrie Irving has found this connection with his Native American roots. Well, it just so happens that the COVID rate um, among Native, American, Native, uh, Native Americans is, is awful. And he has a real opportunity there to talk to people um, in his community, not just the African-American community, but the Native American community about vaccinations. The other thing, too, that's so amazing and powerful about this misinformation is they will trust a YouTube rabbit hole. They will trust Facebook memes. They will trust other anecdotal bad evidence when the best evidence is right in front of them. 90% of the league is vaccinated. And Bradley Beal, who today talked about how he wasn't vaccinated, was so worried about the after effects. Look at the people on your damn team. There's a player in the NBA, Carl Anthony Towns, who has suffered an imaginable, unimaginable losses from COVID, losing close relatives, losing his mother. He himself had COVID, lost 50 pounds, thought about completely retiring from basketball. He was in such a dark place because of what this disease has done to his family. Talk to him. Stop talking to you two. And so to me, that is what I don't understand is that they have top medical experts. They have other players. They certainly believe other players about all sorts of other things. They can see the evidence for themselves. And yet they continue to be in this space of ignorance. Is there something different that the WNBA, the NFL, and even the NHL are doing, Matt, that they've got such high vaccination rates compared to what we tend to think of as the most sort of politically liberal of all of the leagues? Well, the NFL is pretty big. So if you talk about the numbers, we probably got 50 or 60 NBA guys who are not vaxxed here that we're talking about. And NBA league sources tell me that if it comes to it, they'll sweep state databases to root out forged IDs, which have become a problem reportedly in the NFL. Um, and, you know, someone like Kyrie is not going to get paid for, for missing games. And he's got to balance that, right? That didn't stop him from taking a leave of absence in January, precipitated by the Capitol riot and the lack of charges against the, the cop who shot Jacob Blake. And when Kyrie came back, he and his teammate, Kevin Durant, they, they skipped the national anthem. Now, Nobody really noticed that until I did, but I, but I think these players are on notice now. Are they going to stand for justice and for science? Or as Jamel said, are they going to kind of pick and choose their battles of influence? You know, Kareem Abdul-Jabarki was pretty harsh. He came down, he said, these, they've given up their, you know, their role as role models at this point. But I have to say, you know, as out front as some NBA players, and especially WNBA, but some NBA players have been about things like voting rights. It's been pretty silent. There aren't too many prominent NBA players that are getting out there and saying, let's get back and doing that same kind of activism. It's troubling. And, you know, we know that there's a disproportionate rate of death among black people and indigenous people, et cetera, if they get COVID. I, it, I don't know. I don't really have a question there. I, I just am going to leave it. Get you, let you have the last word, Jamel, because it worries me. Um, what I would, I understand why it would be very concerning, but I think there are rules of sort of unofficial decorum in the NBA. You don't talk about a guy's money. And I think that there is this fine line that a lot of players are trying to balance. They all keep saying this is a personal decision. Actually, it's not a personal decision because if Kyrie Irving misses these home games and considering how close the Brooklyn Nets were to going to the NBA finals last year and possibly winning a title, if this cost them their title chances, this is costing people's legacies. This is costing other people jobs because everybody doesn't have the job security that he has on his own team. And I would say that for Andrew Wiggins as, as well. The Golden State Warriors have the fifth best odds to win the NBA title, meaning that they are in play. All right. So if he winds up missing these games because he's not vaccinated and it costs them, then you're costing people a lot more. So it can't be a personal decision when it infects and when it affects an entire community and your team and your organization. 
And your hometown fans. You can't even play mm-hmm. in front of your hometown fans because of, of this and the conspiracy theories. It's too much. Matt Sullivan, thank you very much. Great article. Jamel Hill, you're always great. Thank you. Up next, remember this. So goal number one in the state of Texas is to eliminate rape so that no woman, no person will be a victim of rape. Yeah, it gets a lot worse. Tonight's absolute worst is next. Stay with us. Remember that time Greg Abbott justified his draconian six-week abortion ban that has zero exceptions for rape and incest by straight up claiming he could eliminate rape? Well, yesterday, Chris Wallace pressed him on that, asking if it was acceptable to tell Texans that they don't need to worry about the law because he can somehow eliminate rape. And also whether he'd sign a bill introduced by a Republican lawmaker, including those exceptions. Survivors of sexual assault, uh, they deserve support, care and compassion. But separately from that, Chris, I got to point out uh, about the ways that I have fought to uh, go uh, uh, to arrest and apprehend and uh, try to eliminate rape. Are you saying that you will not sign uh, an exception for rape and incest? Well, first, I got to tell you, Chris, you're, you're making a hypothetical that's not going to happen because that bill is not going to reach my desk. Uh, but, but second, uh, again, the, the goal is to protect the life of okay. every child with a heartbeat. Look, people do not need to share their specific reasons for getting an abortion. And it's worth stating over and over again that a significant majority, 62 percent of Americans, according to a new Monmouth poll, think abortion should be legal, while 35 percent think it should be illegal. But only 11 percent think there should be zero exceptions for rape and incest. Greg Abbott is so desperate to get reelected that he's pandering to an extremist minority instead of actually governing. And because his near total abortion ban just wasn't enough, Abbott also just signed a law restricting access to abortion medications. Thanks to Abbott, abortion clinics are filling up in neighboring states like Oklahoma, leading to a longer wait time for appointments. As The New York Times points out, the longer women have to wait, the more expensive their procedures become. Not to mention the money it costs Texans to leave the state and take off work. That is those privileged enough to be able to do so. But Greg Abbott doesn't actually care about Texans. He says he's worried about the lives of fetuses while his state fails children and their parents over and over again. Texas is dead last when it comes to health insurance coverage for women. And it also has one of the worst rates of food security, food insecurity, whether families have enough to eat. So, Greg Abbott, for your continued bizarre argument that you know how to eliminate rape and more importantly, your determination to be as extremist as you possibly can when it comes to abortion, among other things, you're tonight's absolute worst. And that's tonight's tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. MSNBC.